0: Hi and welcome to episode 101 of Talking With Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives in art. I'm Maria Stolger and I'm excited to bring you my conversation with acclaimed artist Joshua Yeldum, whose mesmerising work crosses painting, sculpture and photography. The imagery he creates is steeped in nature. Large works range from portraying the landscape with stunning mystical trees to figures with a tribal aesthetic to his iconic owls, which he has famously painted and sculpted multiple times over the years, even as a self-portrait. Most recently, they reference the landscape on Sydney's Pittwater, water where untouched bushland converges on the Hawkesbury River, a short boat trip from his home. And as you get closer to these works, you realise they are intricately composed with astonishing detail and the marks aren't limited to paint. They're often created through carving into the board or paper and in some cases even inserting cane into the surface which protrude to create an exciting visual experience. I also filmed Joshua in his studio where he carves into his work and that video will be on the YouTube channel and the website in the next couple of weeks. Joshua's had over 30 solo shows, including an acclaimed survey show, and his work is highly sought after in Australia and internationally. His show Providence opened at Sydney's Art House Gallery a few days ago, and that'll continue until the 21st of November 2020, so if you're in Sydney, try and get to it. It is a must-see. Joshua's lived an adventurous life, and you'll be hearing all about it in this interview, from risking his life in the mountains of Venezuela to living in an abandoned double-decker bus in the Australian desert. But we start at the beginning of it all, where Joshua tells me about his early family life.
1: My mum and dad were involved in the fashion industry, so I was, as a little boy, I was able to see... um, dad and mom like holding garments and uh probably appraising their beauty or f- the quality of the fabric or my dad who was kind of like a Warren Beatty kind of character you know that was in those days you know like the gold chain and all the hair and using Hawaiian tan lotion to bathe in the sun and he would roll out uh, a new dress that he had imported from say France to a client and as a little boy I got to see all this kind of rolling out of fabric and rolling out of clothes. And and he loved to make people look amazing. And he got excited by that. And uh, he started representing more and more unique brands. Like he was the first to have Gaultier in Australia, the first to have Kenzo, Yamamoto, um, you know, really interesting designers. And I used to hide behind the clothes racks as a little boy. And then he, promoted me to Box Boy where I had to break all the boxes down. And then I became a T-shirt transfer kid where on weekends we had the first transfer machine that would put transfers on T-shirts from America.
0: Oh, yeah. And so
1: we were always taught to work um, in a retail environment Mm -hmm. and always making um, pocket money doing these jobs. And then the main part that Dad and Mum brought us up with at a very young age was to make things and sell them. So uh, very early on, we were making uh, shell necklaces, selling them on the beach, watermelon, um, painting shoes and selling those. Um, There's an early photograph of my sisters and I in a Vogue where we made these shoes and it it got told in a little article how we were selling them. And then the the Vogue came out and uh, my sisters were laughing at the photo and I went to look at it. And there I am, like eight years old, sitting on the grass with my sisters and our newly painted shoes and my willies poking out of my
0: shorts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So that was uh, my first taste of being in the media.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, The photographer must not have picked that up.
1: No, no, or the editor. (laughs) Um, But uh, we were selling uh, – our main industry was selling lemons at our hobby farm, which was on on the Hawkesbury River, which we still have. And so we grew up every weekend. We were bundled in the car and – and went up to the farm and it was a typical classic hobby farm when I was about, well, mum and dad bought it when I was born. So I, my first 10 years was on that farm every weekend, baling hay, playing uh spotlight, um, uh, making things, riding little motorbikes, um, and watching my dad learn about cattle, which was really quite hysterical because he knew he was a city slicker who really, uh, didn't know what he was doing. Um, and like, the first time he got on a motorbike he overthrottled it and the bike and he went into a wall and smashed and this classic <laughs> city slickers trying to have a farm yeah but the great thing from that was the beginning of my awareness that you needed elders because the neighbor next door was Mr Hall who was in his 60s at the time when I was young and he became really the guardian of the farm and dad realized how natural he was with knowing the land and how to look after it so he employed my dad employed Mr. Hall and I just kept following him around the farm and learning things and learning how to tie knots and stuff a lot of things that my dad couldn't really teach me I started to learn from him and in a way that was the beginning of realizing that I can go to other men for knowledge Mm. and I really adopted that through my whole life Um, and obviously women too but it was it was quite special to see um, someone that could read the land and uh, also learn how to care for it and also had interesting concepts like my father would order a big, you know, would want a big brown snake killed and then I would watch Harold, you know, one time he would just kill it and then another time there was another snake, he would remove it and let it go in the forest. So there was this kind of contradictions uh, from from his behavior and i was curious about that i was mm-hmm. curious you know um and i was with him when he lost a finger you know and a bailer and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff you know and when a cow dies in a fence and lots of things that a city boy would normally not have that's access so to
0: well that's interesting because that probably wouldn't have happened if you hadn't your parents hadn't got that property
1: well that's right and, and this was the days of of a little black and white tv with static you know with a little code hanger so there was no tv there was no computers um and uh for me you know i had quite severe learning difficulties at school so i rejoiced in going to the farm because it had no reference to homework or anything like that you know and um going back to school I was a boarder uh and I I was deeply distressed being a boarder so the farm was really my my chance to have a weekend away from the boarding house and that really was um where I would take an like at a young age like eight nine I'd take a sketchbook and I would over the course of a year fill every page of that sketchbook um and I kind of started to learn as I got older that I was unique because very few people could fill a whole book, you know. And that yeah. takes you to a new level of kind of a bit like sailors that get a swallow tattoo to their arm for doing 4,000 nautical miles at sea. You know, it's kind of when you fill an exercise book every page, you're kind of at the next level of dedication to your journaling. And you're you're dreaming, you know, or you're not dreaming but like your, your kind of imagination, you know.
0: That's interesting because, yeah, filling up the whole book is very rare and also there's that feeling of that preciousness of the book, you know. I don't know if you've ever had that but I, you sort of think, oh, this is the journaling book yeah. and then you can never actually even start and if you do a couple of drawings, you know, it's somehow you can't keep going. So Yeah,
1: I mean, that is so often said by artists is is the vulnerability or or the um the uh intensity of staring at a blank page and and the precious page like as if the pulp is just kind of level of purity and if I'm going to draw on it, it's got to be incredible and amazing. And uh, for me, um, that that's a reason why you buy an exercise book with, say, 500 pages. Because the the trick is is to lower the um, concern that that you are defacing it. Like it's it's a it's a it, it's really a material, but the brain wants to be more beholden ho- on it because you're trying to trick yourself to make something extraordinary on it. Mm. In my case. Um, you know uh you know I was the kid that would just rip the page out and throw it if it if in that search for perfection, and then it 's only later on in life I realized there was no perfection it doesn 't exist, and that every destruction becomes something else and then until finally it reaches a point where you 're interested in that destruction um, but definitely, as a kid, I was having tantrums I would throw, um, throw! Th- I used to throw tennis rackets at, at the fence because I, I was losing. I was a real, I had a very short fuse. And I think art was a playground where I could watch my failings become something where in class and on the sports field, I was a complete failure no matter what. Like the the, the community kind of made me a failure because I couldn't play the education system. I couldn't parrot learn. I couldn't even work out where the lines of the football field were. I would run into the next field because I didn't have sp- – I have uh, a type of dyslexia that has spatial awareness issues. You know, so I was <laughs> – I, I hid in the art department basically.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And then there were the bullies and I was really hammered in in terms of being kind of – picked on and so I would hide in that building that was the clay pot room you Mm, know
0: mm. and were you considered amongst your peers as the arty kid uh
1: in the school I was at in in uh in the eastern suburbs uh I was considered the poof um or you know I was considered all those words they would yell at me and 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 in the art room, I was nothing flash. I was just just a kid. It wasn't until I had this amazing moment where my mom and dad separated. And in that space, I was given the great privilege to go to europe and i went to a new school where i could reinvent myself and there were girls there and so suddenly i could become a new josh uh one i started to like more and the art department was quite sophisticated being being in its location in switzerland where it had access to quite amazing museums and teachers that were a little bit different in the way that um they 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 kind of saw me a bit more fresher and uh, encouraged me to the point where they pulled me aside and said, we want to take you to some quite amazing places to see some mind-blowing art. And as an Eastern suburb boy in Sydney, you know, to go to Europe was just extraordinary, to go to some of the great museums and just eat pictures that I'd only seen in magazines and stuff. Um, In particular, probably artists, you know, for me like Giacometti, Really blew me away, or you know to see to see a van Gogh like you know starry night, or you know i just mm. couldn 't believe it um, i I was a great lover of kandinsky i 'm not so much anymore, but like things like that poor clay you know the, where, where you know kind of a European interest in tribalism that always was under my belt from having a love affair with tribal art um, and the way markings are made for ritual and sacrifice and reverence. It always interests me, art that was made for a purpose, like a practical purpose, um, as in craft. You know, I love the concept of craft. Um, Mm.
0: And did you, I think you also went to sort of North African countries as well. Yeah
1: yeah I did I mean, I really dived deeply with my stepfather with uh, you know travels through the Sahara and north Africa um, and uh you know definitely um with my interest in south america and and asia i i 've been kind of found myself in places where people are still living with a language system that 's adorned by the land or or kind of composed by the land, and that those people have uh, kind of open their hearts to me and, and showing me things um, because uh, I've always felt slightly displaced by my surroundings, and so it's been a wonderful kind of wandering to learn how to how to um, receive. Uh, I guess it's a kind of sensuality from nature through those mm. people that go into the forest for other reasons than just physical sport or you know getting fit you know they're going into the forest for their food or their medicine or their um for for spiritual reasons and i i i guess from being a boy that didn't really like his surroundings i wanted to create a new i wanted to create a new scaffolding that would be a new way of living and when i met these people uh in mountains mostly uh in uh, i felt um that they were quite rich people culturally, and I felt that their community was very strong. And I also loved how they respected creative people right. in the community, and how creatives had a role to make objects for a ceremony. And in a way, I, I always fantasized that I could make something that could have some kind of importance. Uh, more than my daily life, you know to me that mm-hmm. I, I could make an object that I could put in my pocket, like like we all love to find a certain stone yeah, yeah. and put it in our pocket as a reference of a place, but also as a reference that over time, if we rub it, it becomes more valuable, and then from there, you can go anywhere that stone can be given to another person as a, a gift, or it can always be near your bed as a symbol of a time. Where you were searching, or felt you loved the beach, where you were at, you know, it's kind of ref- it's map making, basically. Yeah, yeah,
0: and I suppose that was more valued where you were in Europe rather than here in Australia. Well,
1: I didn't have. Uh, it's valued everywhere if you land in the right place with people practicing. You know, had I had I had access to, um, you know, other kinds of people in where I lived in Sydney, it could have I could have had it all here. But my journey took me to the other side of the world and um uh and also my other love i'd never seen a mountain and so when i landed in switzerland at at 13 and a half 14 i never saw snow until then and i'd never seen any mountain and so suddenly because it was a outward bound school and a very strict school where you had to learn to climb mountains um the the every weekend we had to load a backpack on and the first few expeditions I just had the biggest tantrums because I was tired and Mm. giving I gave up and all the all the um other kids were like oh yeah you'll get over this you'll learn about it and they pick up my backpack and we kept pushing and if I had a blister I, I would say I can't go any further well jump six months later and I learned the beginnings of pushing through
0: Mm. and
1: I hadn't had that training I hadn't learned to push through anything I just would give up and so mountain climbing was the beginning of like like running with a stitch you know you learn that kind of gate how to open it up and go through the gate
0: well I suppose also that you were with compassionate people yeah, so, I mean to you know that encouraged you to push through. To- oh,
1: and with girls like, oh God, I gotta try and keep up with them. You know they're powering up the mountain and you know <laughs> all that, and um, and we would sleep in a little steel hut on a glacier, and I was like. Blown away that you could do this stuff, yeah. you know, like it was, and you're above the clouds, and that you were all stinky, but you're all curled up like little sardines in a in a shack while there's a snowstorm, wow. or you have to dig ice caves and know that the you got to dig the cave, you know, another two feet because the ice is shrinking through the night and it can it can hit your head and wet you, so you got to. Oh. There's so many crevasse rescue, all this stuff we wow. did, you know.
0: And um, didn't you? You ended up like climbing uh, you know 60 mountains or something during that period is that right
1: i I got into the groove so (laughs) um i climbed everything and then the the really the real moment of change was after two years in switzerland i started to um so as you go if you want to really climb you've got to climb through the night and i was scared of the forest at night And so I started to sneak out of school at about two in the morning and go down into the woods and just start incrementally moving quickly through the forest at night. And I did that for about a year and I started to relearn movement through forest because I was brought up with all the stories that you don't go into the woods at night and all the fairy tales and, and Hansel and Gretel and all this kind of imposing on a young mind that nature is a violent disturbing place I reworked it and it took a while but I got to a point where um, in my last year at school uh, I was uh, 17 uh, I could leave very early in the morning of the school and take my skins and climb the nearest mountain and ski back before school started and no one would know but that involved moving through the night through a forest, skinning, and then getting up onto the highest slopes. And finally, sometimes I'd take a bottle of wine with my mate Peter and we'd crack it and, <laughs> and then come back to school. We'd ski back. And so that was this whole beginning of, wow, I can actually um, use night. Uh, in a way that normally you're meant to be confined in your bed and that now even plays a role where many of these works are made through the night. I, 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 I change the time sequence of creating and I start at 2 in the morning and I work right through until, you know, like 5 in the afternoon and I, and I do that for, say, 3 months and then I stop. But it's, I, I get a double harvest in time. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. So what do you find that's different about working that way?
1: Well, later on in life I learned that around 2 in the morning all the plants start breathing and the, 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 the charm of that moment of 2 a.m., the air is really pure and the tinkling and the silence, and in particular when I had babies, they were asleep, Generally, So, you know, so that was the quiet time where I could really claim space as a father and as a parent. But prior to that, um, it was just teaching myself to get two days out of one so I could achieve more. And I think that anyone that has quite large visionary goals, a lot of those people have learned to work the hours through the night. But the other side is you have to know to call it that harvest is complete and you have to rest and regain because you, you can't keep it up. It becomes a kind of hoarding and then you get out of whack, you get cranky. Mm. But there is a training. Um, just as like, um, you know, my nanny, uh, I had a nanny for a little while while my mom was working in, in Melbourne and she was also part-time a night worker for Qantas doing catering. And so she. I, 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 got, a, I got a really strong sense from her how she worked through the night and I was very close to her so I just adopted that that's also what you do and then my dad would wake me up for school before I went to Europe my dad would wake me up at like 5 a.m with a cup of tea and drop me at school at 6 and school didn't open till like Eight so I just stay at school waiting,
0: oh my God, and then
1: I became a boarder, and then it all changed but um,
0: yeah so you 're not so so night is is something that you 're used to,
1: well, you know how some people say they they 're lying in bed and and, they're, and they wake up and they can 't get back to sleep and they 're trying to get to sleep mm. and trying and and it's like as if there's this huge pressure that, oh, you loser, you can't get back to sleep. <laughs> For me, I just get out of bed and I come down here and I make things. Yeah. And even if it's one hour and then I'm tired, I go back to sleep. So having the studio at home is joyful. So, you know, I, I sometimes think we're not required to uh, do this routine sleep, that there's moments, especially in full moon, when full moon is pumping. Why are we any different to plants when we have the same amount of carbon and water kind of flowing through us? You know, why wouldn't we be activated on a full moon and actually shake it up and go on a really long walk, say at one in the morning till two, and go uh, under the moon? Like I, I, and that's part of being with mountain people, is Mm. their connection to the elements, or even desert with people I've been in the desert. You know, we you don't work in strict structures of. Bedtime, you know, yeah. it's more capitalism and, and industry that required us to fit into these slots. Um, the creatives can move through the cracks. We can, you know, we can reinvent the, the, the sundial, you know, how we wish to work. Um, but the key is, is managing exhaustion and managing... Um, uh, for me, uh, I'm creative dominant. So everywhere I go, I have potential to make stuff. So I have to be careful that I don't exhaust myself by keeping that up. I have to be really careful with discipline to turn off because if i if I keep making for too long i 'm hoarding the creative knowledge and i 'm starting to um, not rest.
0: What do you mean by hoarding the creative knowledge
1: so one one of the laws I learned from people that live uh, with an awareness of of uh, nature 's laws is that um, in a in a cycle of creativity so let's say you get an amazing run of making something or you're loving the feeling of of sewing and you're making a pillow and it's going really well and in that cycle simu- simultaneously is a moment where it will start to collapse the whole experience won't be what it was yeah so you watch that joy of making the pillow start to change because your brain suddenly clicked at how much more stitching you have to do to fulfill it. So when you had your high, at some point is coming then a low because the laws can't maintain the high consistently. So simultaneously as creation is born, simultaneously is the shadow line of destruction. So what, what you do is you you kind of... If I only want that creative high of sewing my pillow, I'm going to try and just keep going and try and force to have uh, the high Um, and it will bite you. What happens is the creative force will come up like a dragon and bite you because you can't hoard it. You can't hoard keep making. You have to have a period where things are collapsing So I accept the destruction period. And what happens is I actually enjoy watching then my stitching collapse because I'm getting tired. I'm watching the sewing getting looser, the threads getting less strong because I'm losing it. I can't keep it up. And then in that, I start making new imagery in that tiredness. And I let go of the, the need for a high because I'm watching everything collapse. And then in that space, I rest and then, in that kind of destruction, I look for a seed of newness that is a new creative thread that then starts growing and gives me new energy so it 's a bit like the Celtic double, the dragon that eats its tail it 's consistently spiraling um and so uh,
0: so would the work that you 're doing in that destructive period be work that you discard?
1: no, nothing 's discarded because by. Loving it, loving the collapse, loving the fact that let's say you're painting an eye and the eye starts becoming off symmetry. Your brain is saying, I need it to be symmetry. You're failing, you're failing. And then as I watch the eye slide right off to the right of the head, there's a point where perfection would say, stop, you've got to bring the eye back. Mm -hmm. But instead, I allow the storyline of that collapse to take the eye right to wherever it wants to go. And then I have to reweave that eye into the whole body. And sometimes the eye then becomes a tarot leaf because I rejected it. It's no longer an eye. It didn't want to be an eye. It becomes a tarot. Mm. And so that's where my um, imagination is really um, liquid because I'm not rigidly attached to a result where if I was an artist that planned everything, you are. You need like an architect. Why didn't you build my house this way? I drew it this way. I'm incredibly fluid and adapt. I love adaptation, hence all the animals and things are talking about adaptation because I love going up a mountain path where I don't know what's around the corner and I've got to pull out my little tools and come up with a way to cross a cliff. And so pictures are like no pictures plan. like every picture could be a figure and then the next day it's a landscape. And so I'm fluid like that. And, and people find both in my work. They find landscape and they find little shapes and snakes and, and I think that's what we've done in landscape for hundreds of thousands of years as we've moved through land. We look for things in the land to identify with and make, make these kind of, human maps to exist because otherwise it's so overwhelming Mm. we feel so isolated if we don't map make in in the country you know
0: and would that be something that um you've started one day and then come back the next day and see it in a whole different way or do you feel it's better if you do the whole work in one session
1: in my in my first decade of painting, I had that indulgent space where I was um, able to work really long hours on a picture, and then being a dad came in, and you can't have that. Like it's like a five minute hit was a good hit. Like I got to make a mark for five <laughs> minutes, and then you're back at it, you know. So I learned the great one of the great things that having kids taught me was to be instead of an archer with. Three hundred arrows to shoot the target you, you wheel down to maybe three arrows to have a shot and they've got to be bloody sharp and really accurate and one of the things that happened to my work was I was more uh, um, economical in saying uh, I'm going to invest in this and I'm not going to invest in that that's redundant it's going to take it's not paying off for me so I really reduced down to Um, kind of, uh, kind of uh, a devotion to the work that was really, um, uh, uh, very short durations but I gave it even more power because I was it's like you crave a date with someone that you can only see it once every four years you know it's like it's got that spontaneity and excitement to it mm. you know and to me pictures during childhood which I found difficult raising kids um and being an artist um when I got to paint it was like my time and I really cherished it in particular going up river uh, for a day versus going up for two weeks, you know, like, you know, I would go up for, for say, even two hours in the bush was just extraordinary to have a break from nappies and all that yeah. stuff. Um, but now, now it's changed. I get my time back.
0: I just want to go back to, um, you know, the fact that you didn't actually, after school, you didn't actually fall into painting. Um, you were more into film at yeah. that point yeah um and i think you pursued that at, at in new york and the rhode I- rhode island school of yeah. design uh but can you tell me a little bit about um a fascinating trip that you took to venezuela which i think was after your first year um yeah. studying
1: yeah so i i i didn't have any grades um i failed my in i did the english a level and i failed my art i got I didn't pass Um, but I luckily had a strong portfolio that got me into uh, RISD, Rhode Island School of Design in in providence just above four hours above new york um i just got in on the waiting list i was like 53 and they took 55 people on the waiting list um i was on probation academic probation which means i couldn't fail one of the academic one of the like art history or english i couldn't fail so again i knew when i landed there i had to find a way to get through those exams and um uh work out a strategy to kind of cheat again to do that but at the same time when i got there i was so pumped to do filmmaking because i i became a filmmaker for um expedition um uh, men that were training for everest before i went to this university so i got a sense a taste of filmmaking in in the mountains yeah, right. and so i went to because it was well known for um the teachers were um ex-kalahari bushman doco filmmakers from africa and so I knew they would know all the techniques of taking a camera and going into the wild. And so my first year there, I dived in um, in a way that kind of uh, frustrated me because the, the courses, the, the projects that they gave me in filmmaking was so boring um, in a way that it was like make a minute little film about motion uh, you know, like re- where I had been up on a mountain filming, you know, yeah, so yeah. I was a bit eager to go higher up into the projects than what they wanted me to as a first-year filmmaker. So I bought a cheap ticket to Venezuela and went straight to the Andes to climb in my first holiday. Um, and
0: Was that on your own?
1: Yeah. And uh, flying into Merida, um, I... Um, I saw this incredible peak of a mountain. It's one of those peaks where just two people could stand on the top. And so I set that as my goal to find it. And uh, I went to the market and bought food and I just got to the base of that mountain and I just went up through the bush and started hiking up right up through the gorge. But I didn't know about fog and that's when the the fog came in on the third day of the rainforest because it's high altitude um, up to about... um, 4,800, 5,200 meters um, is the Mount Humboldt. And um, I got caught in the fog and that's when I got pretty worried because I couldn't work out where I was. And that's where I met Chucho, um, who was a hermit up there. That's an, an
0: incredible, <laughs> yeah. incredible story. Yeah. So this, you were in the middle of nowhere, halfway up a mountain. Yeah. And so you must have been so what, for a couple of days you were a bit uh, worried? I, there
1: was one day I, I started writing to my mum. I thought I was, because I, I really couldn't, I was blinded by the fog. I couldn't work out how to get down. And uh, uh, he came out of nowhere yelling at me and telling me I was a real idiot uh, in Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish, but I could tell he was angry at me and he's, beautifully uh eloquent in his aggression to me and he, he you know curly hair and wearing rustic clothes coconut vest um big shells around his uh, neck and uh then he started i started pointing up to the top of the mountain telling him what I was trying to do and he then he started rolling with laughter when he worked out this kid with hardly any provisions was trying to get up the mountain so then he pointed to my leather shoes i was wearing was wearing italian dinner shoes because that's all that's what i had at the time from my dad's (laughs) shop and um he was laughing and then uh he uh he pointed to my shoes and he said uh swap shoes and i'll take you up the mountain like he made it clear he wanted my leather shoes so i gave him my leather shoes and um and i wore his and uh we climbed for like two weeks together all the way up to the glacier i didn't get to the top i got too sick um but In that time, he was very generous with showing me the mountain that he's so fond of and what happens up there. And so when I went back to film school, again, they gave me another really um, mundane project, which was like learning how to plug cameras in and, and audio, like what we're doing today. And I had already gone beyond that. So all I could think about was, wow, That was just insane what happened to us on that mountain, like sleeping together in caves, chasing a white horse that had broken its ankle, learning about um, his belief about voices in the rocks, learning about native plants. And I'm like what am I doing in film school? Like, I've got to make something with him. So the the first uh, minute I could, I flew back and I said, can I make a film with you and I about what we'd experienced? And he said, sure, sure, if you give me this, this, and this. And I said, sure, no worries, I'll work out that. And then I spent a year fundraising and raising money, having dinners. I created a little foundation and ended up with about 62 people that all gave from like $10 to $100. And I started this kind of seven-year journey of making the movie with uh, 15 friends and um,
0: and wasn't he? Chucho was actually in the yeah, movie it's as him. well. Yeah. And how did that work? I mean, was that because you directed yeah, it as well?
1: I wrote it and directed and produced it um, with a friend. And
0: and you uh, were like 20, 22. I was 19, or 20,
1: 21, 22, 23. Yeah. All those, like I didn't know how to make a film. It was made as we went, <laughs> but it, it was extraordinary because we were a little community up on this mountain and um, I was the leader who often didn't know how to lead but I seemed to just keep pushing forward and even on Christmas day at right up on the glacier we ran out of food and we had to have Christmas without any food and everyone was so upset and our lighting was old motorbike batteries and our dolly was a skateboard on plumbing pipes and but we made this film that ended up winning an Emmy um, and nominated for an Oscar, you know, which was kind of cool. Um, that must
0: have been an incredible experience to win an Emmy out of the blue like that because I don't think you you had actually entered it. As no, far. my
1: cameraman entered it. I didn't even think of it. I was back in Australia kind of uh, trying to get my next film up and running in the desert and um, I hadn't thought, about my status as an American graduate that I could apply and he did it and uh, he rang me and said you're gonna laugh at this and anyway we we got flowing over and and did all that but at the same time I learned that I wasn't a Hollywood kid because that's kind of what could have happened um I I t- I had my first taste of the Australian desert and I had to gun it back and mm. then I won a Queen's Trust award from the Queen and I put that money into buying a combi van and I headed out to somewhere i don't know, I just started gunning it out into the desert until she broke down
0: well, this is an interesting yeah. this is an interesting thing that that has you know happened in a couple of times in your life that you know it happened in Venezuela, yeah where you were sort of stranded in the mountain, yeah and you got rescued uh, but you know what happened when the combi broke down or got stuck in the sand
1: well I, I think I think that's the boundary I was talking about in art. You know, to play in the boundaries where all the vitality is, it's where your instincts are really sharpened and where you face, you know, this kind of deep loneliness. Um, and being stranded in a riverbed in my combi because I was an idiot, I, I, I there was a big water puddle on the dirt road and I thought I could gun it down uh, a sandy part of a creek and the combi just sunk into it. Um, so I I went and got a jerry can and wrote help with an arrow and carried it all the way back to the dirt road and aimed the arrow up the creek and then I I went back to the car because I had read in a book you're supposed to stay near your car when you're stuck out there and uh, you know I just I was used to the combi so I just hung out in the riverbed and just waited and I think it was like it was pretty quick that stranded it was like two and a half days or something finally a four-wheel drive arrived Mm. a local farmer who just yelled at me that I was a fuckwit and um and he pulled me out and just took off and uh I made it to the local corner store at Cameron Corner where by chance Catherine the owner was there and her partner Sandy and I never left I stayed working in that roadhouse as a friend and as a as a petrol bowser guy and they let me camp my combi down in the sand dunes and um, after about it, uh, on and off a year of learning from Catherine because she's a desert, a real desert wanderer and knows a lot about life in the desert, um, I started writing a film about what I was experiencing and then... I was with a guy called Dave who took me on a million acre farm in the desert and uh, we go down a sand dune and there's this deserted old double decker bus and I go, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's a... That's an old 1952 Leyland. It uh, used to be a stockman's camp, but no one lives there. And I said, can I live there? And he said, don't see why not. And so that became my shelter.
0: Wow. And then I I've got. I've actually seen photos of that in the, in the book that you wrote yeah. a few years ago called Surrender, uh, which is a magnificent book. I must say I really enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Thanks. Uh, I couldn't believe that double-decker bus because it's a rusty old abandoned double-decker bus yeah. in the desert.
1: Well, you know, some people joke that, that Into the Wild, it was a bit like the film Into the Wild where, where um, you know, like Alex Supertramp lives in a bus for too long. And for me, that bus was the most amazing world because upstairs were hundreds of zebra finches all living and a white owl. And so I never, I had, as soon as I got there, I knew I had to learn rules about the bus. So I never slept upstairs because that's the world of the birds. And then downstairs was my space where I set up a little table to write my film. And then over the years, when, when the film collapsed and funding dried up, I went back and I used it then as a place where I bought lots of paper and I just started making marks. And they were the first marks when I, I think it was somewhere like 96 was my first mark on paper to, to kind of get out my sadness that the film wouldn't be made that I wrote out there, but what could be made is my experiences um, could be channeled onto paper. Um, mm. But life in that bus was really special because I went for up to 46 days without seeing a human, and so I made rituals with art to exist in space that really had no structure you know it has no structures like we have in, in, at home you know we have you're you're in deep solitude and you have to reinvent the wheel a bit how to exist um and keep your mind in check you and know what
0: sort of things would you do
1: um well the, the first thing that comes to mind is games so you play games so um so i had many cans of tuna that seemed to be my main food. And that became a main subject of a lot of pictures where these kind of, uh, uh, like fish coming out of tuna cans and talking to me, you know, there was, they were, um, but one of the elements was you have to live with ants. And so I started to realize that unless I had an arrangement with the bull ants, um, they were gonna attack my swag. So I learnt where the highways were because all ants have highways. So I, I first made maps of the highways and then I each morning would put a piece of tuna on each intersection of the highway to tell them to please please let me be left alone in the center where I was working. And so that was one ritual, which is you you are building a relationship with the ants. Um, the other part is that if you give if you collect arrow seeds from the acacia that you want to you want to kind of um, kind of cook up you can you can leave them around the same ant holes, they take them down and they remove the husk and then deposit the seed again that you can then eat so they work you can work with them a bit. And
0: uh and then things Did you figure that out yourself? No,
1: Catherine taught me that. She makes ice cream, wattle seed ice cream, but it has a husk that you can't really it takes a while to get off. So she works with the ants. And I'd never met anyone that worked with ants before. You know, only beekeepers that work with bees. Um and then I don't know, like one time in the swag at about two in the desert, um, feeling a compression over my chest. You don't really sleep in the desert you kind of nod and it's always nodding because there's dingo and there's lizard moving around you but one time big compression over my chest and i just had to lay still because it was a big snake just going right over me over my chest and then cruising through and it's just like you're just part of the landscape and you just just trust you know just trust and um
0: that must have been something, that that connection with nature and animals, do you think that, that goes back to your childhood when with the farm and that sort of thing?
1: I think that playing hide and – like playing spotlight, you remember when you have a torch and everyone's got to try and get up a hill and there's one person with a torch and if they shine it on you, you're out of the game? Mm. Well, I was kind of the kid that was – Kind of waited a long time down in the darkness before I, I had a go. So I think I had an interest in darkness in forests. Um, but it, it's a, like a beautiful seed that's germinated. Um, and again, I really stress that if you marry yourself to, to nature at night, you really are completing the romance. You know, you're really seeing how soft she is and how giving she is uh, to be in her at night. And how that changes your personality to being, you know, um, centrally aware where you're listening and hearing sounds that don't have the daily frequency. They're quite different. Um, and in the desert, uh, I I had to play games also where, like, I would pick a shape in the distance. It could be, like, often trees became figures because of they were dead mulgas and they had arms upright like holding out saying come to me and so i would say okay i'm going to walk to that tree and come back and those trees might be an hour and a half two hour walk i just touch it and come back to my bus and so i'm kind of creating a sundial of time because you're you're really you don't you know you're not in a in a routine job you're just sitting you're just dwelling you're Mm. just you're just kind of dissolving
0: did you read a lot and that sort of
1: thing uh i wrote A lot. I had lots of books, yeah, including uh, uh, the combi manual for the complete idiot because my carburetor (laughs) broke and I had to learn to rebuild it and I knew nothing about mechanics. I tried to fix the fuel um, filter under the car and I accidentally pulled the hose off and the fuel went in my eyes. And that was kind of the end. That was like 40-something days and I was like, okay, that's a big message too. That's when I would be hoarding. Like I would be hoarding the creative experience. I needed to stop come back out, come back to life, like come back out of my kind of, some would call it the yogi space where you're, you're in a deep solitude, I need to come back to community. And that was mm-hmm. the fuel in the eyes was when I stayed too long and that's where I believe nature creates a big dramatic event that bites you or does something quite quite instrumental in changing your navigation mm-hmm. to return. And that's the part where artists um have to learn to return back to duty, family, you know, you you, you know or, or not, you choose not to. But in my case there's always been a, a discipline training how to return back because it's so intoxicating to create. You know, mm. how do you return back to the mundane, to cleaning, vacuuming, you know, paying bills, you know. Mm. You
0: know. And tell me, when you were um so that So that was the start of painting. Mm, Yeah. Did that create a turning point for you in your direction?
1: Yeah. Oh Well, the film, it shocked me because the film would be my first feature film in Australia and um, I was really like, you know, I was put on, you know, big articles in Rolling Stone as the next big thing and all that kind of, I got caught in all that stuff. I didn't stay in LA when I won the Emmy and then the Oscar nomination. I didn't win that, but I got to meet those that, could have opened doors but I was scared and too young to play that game and I felt quite vulnerable in Los Angeles and when I came back to Australia I I really just wanted to be alone and I think the seven years of making the film in South America just wiped me out and so I wrote a lot and I had um, actors like Claudia Carvin and um, Aidan Young signed up to make the, 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 it was kind of like a love story in the desert, to do it. Everything was going well, but um, it was very esoteric uh, in the script and in a way when it got rejected by the last stage of funding uh, and the government, decide, well, the film body decided to make two other different kinds of film, um, I was so shocked that it wasn't going to go ahead that I went and bought 100 sheets of paper from Oxford Art Supplies stonehenge 460 gsm loaded it in my combi with ink and i bought two big tubs of cement oxide uh, because i loved the color from the desert and i knew i could rub that in into the paper Uh, heaps of hairspray at the time i couldn't afford fixative um, and i went out to the desert and every day i got tape and marked up the edges of the paper and i made something so every picture in that in, in that trip, which was, say, 28 days, I numbered the day. But the work is very simple, kind of little stick figures. And I also just met Joe, so I was falling in love. And so a lot of the work is about... Us as these kind of little figures in this magical world that is the desert.
0: Yeah. Well, you met Joe, who was to become your wife. Yeah. And that—that's really interesting because that leads me to opening up a whole new period of your life, which would lead to creation of some of your most, you know, famous and recognisable work. Can you tell me a bit about that period of your life and you know the struggles that you and Joe sort of came across at that at that point?
1: Well. Um when I met Joe in the city um I had met I'd seen her twice, and finally I got to sit next to her at an event and it just came out of me. I said, "I'm going to the desert would would you consider coming with me?" And I didn't really know her um and she said, "Oh I've got a job and and I said, "I oh, know uh well, I'd love you to come." And she did. She came, and so that driving, we didn't really know each other in the car, yeah. and we're heading out to the desert. And by the time we got out to like back to Cameron Corner, you know, she literally was out in the sand dunes um, with her camera, photographing spinifex and the way spinifex makes these kind of sundials in the sand. And she then would come back, and then we'd cook and and learn about each other, and then that was like wow because often in in relationships you know i i would be in the city in a relationship and then i would vanish and disappear in the in the mountains you know so i finally met someone that could really possibly spend time out there like i love um when it came to uh kind of learning about hopefully having a family um i was i was told that i was infertile which really hit me really hard and uh and and so for a period of time with that feeling, um I turned back to creativity and I was up kind of building up a feeling that someone some some force was taking the potential of life from me. And that's when it clicked that the sounds of the owl and the tree you know, it was a powerful owl at the time and I felt like, oh, that's who it is. It's the owl that's taking my embryos from me. You know, it's taking my potential for life. Um, it became quite strong later in the story, uh, in that case, but like I was definitely using animals and art to try and justify why I couldn't have kids. And then in that space, um, a doctor said oh we've got some new methods from the america that we could try and in doing that after about a year we tried these things and it led to the fact that that i was a cystic fibrosis carrier so i had we learned that i had a gene called the 508 gene which means all boys with that can't can't deliver sperm naturally but we still make sperm and so therefore um uh the doctors worked with me and then from that celebration of knowing that i could have kids but working with science and working with joey uh, i was kind of taken out of the picture and then as men sometimes face this strange space of ivf um, joey was working with science and nature to have kids and um and that's blessing where indigo was born um and uh from that kind of beautiful gift we tried for jude and jude was four years of of not ivf not working and that's when i was up river and that's when i really heard in this gully is a powerful owl always in the gully this owl and where i sleep and um and i started to say right i'm going to make something that's going to wow you owl i'm going to wow you so that you let our son or our our next child come about. Mm -hmm. And so I would have made, I don't know, leading up to in that four years, I would have made over 100 works towards the owl to just, even I made a boat that I sailed down the creek, a whole offering boat, a fertility boat, hoping that the message would be sent through the subconscious world, the animal world, to try and let – us have another baby and then jude came about so then wow. it was like more to say thank you thank you That's you know amazing yeah. did you
0: make those works um on plein air did you do or yeah
1: oh that- uh, uh, everywhere like uh during during ivf you've got to be really supportive of joey and and um and the process because it's it's a really emotional ride ivf for for a woman and as a guy there's you know a process you go through where you're really um uh, support and also lear- learning how weird it is working with science at times. Um,
0: mm.
1: I made things at home, but definitely um, in the forest, I could command more. Um, uh, I could express more honesty with myself out there because there was there was no one to observe me, and I could release what I needed to release and hopefully ask for guidance. And so, a lot of the owls are guiding ours about how to stay strong how to understand that prey and destruction and taking life is a part of their nature and so when we lost an embryo after losing another one and losing another one accept that there is a level of loss and destruction and then understand that at some point whether it is a child or whether we adopted or whether i i wrote a poem or whether i painted or whatever creation will come in its own way and be alert to embracing and loving what it is versus being upset that it didn't come in the form that you really thought so i got that loose with having a child another child and grateful for my daughter who was alive and so you know i was i was really in good shape but um the owls, uh, when Jude was born, went from being takers of life and givers of life to suddenly then teaching me about this next level of knowledge, which is learning to fly. And so after Jude's birth, um, owls were all about, um, uh, about flying over myself as a landscape, about learning to see myself and my life and learn about the fertile parts of my life but also learn about potential dry areas that need to be irrigated. You know, areas like, say, uh, relationships with my father or mother or, or sister or friends that I haven't been in touch with or, uh, you know, it, it'll, just, just in closing my eyes and, and seeing the wider perspective of my existence and how I could make it more fertile,
0: Yeah, right.
1: And I think any bird has that power. And if you look at cultures from around the world, even masks have been made to become like bird in ceremony because they have that ability to fly over and gain a larger perspective than, say, being in the forest or being in a tight dwelling.
0: Mm. And so
1: as house-dwelling people that were in four walls, the bird is really significant because it means you've got to get out of the walls and then run off a cliff and fly over yourself and see a larger perspective of basically sequence. And that's where wisdom comes in because wisdom is the ability to see sequence and join it with action that makes a causal change in your life.
0: What is sequence?
1: Sequence is just the the uh, awareness of ingredients put together, how it, kind of can lead to an outcome and so for me the people that had great success in life i.e they had freedom to move through space and time had this ability to see a sequence unfolding and cut through it to achieve what they wanted to progress and for me it's a bit like um you know i'm aware that i have uh a magpie family on the corner of my block here that has been here longer than I have. And I'm aware that this corner is their jurisdiction. And so they seem to know every time I work in the garden and change the soil in any way, they come down and utilize that to find worms and save themselves a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So they're just hanging out. And when they see me, they're watching me and watch me create a sequential element that means they come down and just land an easy worm because I've been working my heart out moving the soil. Right. So in a way, it's about being wide perspective as well as um, uh, tight perspective simultaneously uh, and seeing how something plays out um, for example so be,
0: but being aware aware of what 's going on as well
1: being, being curious to track how ingredients put together lead to a result and, re, and learning some of those ingredients, especially in artwork, you know some of the ingredients are really abstract or they 're very physical as in the mixing of certain paints and what happens and I think that that 's where the wisdom comes in because as your practice enhances, you become, uh, you don't have to uh, exhaust yourself as much as you used to, i.e. that that magpie. What I'm trying to get to is that magpie uses me for the labour. Mm-hmm. So in my case, I can use tools to do a vast amount of labour and I don't use the exertion that I used to use in my first 10 years of painting. And that's the practice. Like you now have levels of equipment that facilitate um, not only a quality of your, your show, but facilitate um, uh, the fact that you can focus more on your outcome, your, your writing, because you don't need a crew here. You don't need to feed them. You don't need to bust them here. You know, you've worked out how to stay free and spontaneous. And I think that that's where um, artistic um, uh, awareness of sequence allows you to maintain more and more freedom and, and if I hear, oh, I can't paint, I don't have the time, like I'm too busy, I don't have the time, that's where I go, ah, that's where you study your sequence where you have no time and you find a way to reduce the weight of that sequence by modifying it so things, some things are done for you. Yeah. I.e. the ants taking the arrow seeds down and taking the husk off. So you start working out ways where nature will actually help you to get the time to create, because it wants that. I believe it really wants you to be a creative force. Why? Because you're aligning itself more to nature. And when nature knows you're more interested in it, it starts showing off, and it starts showing you more and more things that are going on, just as people show you more and more when you're interested in them, just as a flower gets more and more yellow to attract a bee... That's how it all works. We want to be bright and colorful because we attract amazing things to us.
0: Mm. Do you? How do you practice that? How do you just? Dis-
1: well, oh, that's a wonderful chat. Um, I my one of my teachers in in Bali says to me, Josh, you know, you're a mirror. You're a mirror to reflect light, but look at you. You have so much dust. Start getting the polishing the dust off start polishing your mirror and you'll be even more bright i thought that was such a simple beautiful analogy as we we reflect light and some of us sometimes you know we've treated ourselves in a way that we've made a lot of junk that's all over our mirror you know and and the other one i use is the bird nest because i love painting characters with bird nests on their head because i think that you know why wouldn't we wear something that that is creative that we've built something to attract something better to come to us like a bird of a bird of knowledge for example mm. but like you know you 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 look at the say the horse races where people women wear these amazing hats that are like bird nests mm. you know they're trying to attract something their beauty they're trying to attract you know i find that kind of odd all these kind of hats that look like like bowerbird nests But, you know, it's old school knowledge that you're trying to attract something. Yeah, well, I suppose
0: fashion is all about that, isn't it?
1: Well, art is too. I mean, part of art is for me to attract something. Yeah. Yeah? I mean, I'm I'm trying to attract things that are very intimate, but I'm also curious about I had a six-year-old here for an art little lesson yesterday, and I was curious if I could attract him into my world. And then he showed me his little folder of his world. You know, there's a mm. there's a there's a sharing of colours and 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 joy of our inner culture, our inner our inner makings that um makes life really kind of special when people can feel trusted and safe to reveal their their um deeper world and uh, i think that in this world today it's getting harder and harder because we're all there's so many molds that people have to fit into and be regimented that it's kind of hard to be vulnerable and it's kind of hard to f- fuck up and it's kind of hard to uh, um be um uh uh, uh silly Mm. In your in your practice, where you're you're trying things that aren't normally you, you're, you're experimenting.
0: Yeah, I think it's also harder for somebody, for an artist like you who's very well established, um, to be able to do that sort of thing because your their eyes are all on you and everything's published on online now. It used to be, I suppose, at it, the yeah, show. Yeah, you know? I
1: don't think like that. I mean, I don't really think of my status too much. It does come in before a show. I do think a little bit about that stuff and how I'm going to be perceived because I'm finally putting what I've made for a year and a half on the wall. So I get, I do get it. But during that year and a half, I'm just out. I don't, I'm don't. i not in an art. I'm not in a space where I acquire my status of being an artist. Being, I don't require anyone to, to amp it up for me. And, and that's been important for my longevity is that my friends uh, can take it or leave it if I'm making stuff. But there is uh, a wow factor that occurs when people see um, the scale of how much I create because it represents an extraordinary freedom and privilege, and I really get that. I really feel that I have this moment in my life at the moment where I'm able to really manifest and I polish that like the mirror I'm so grateful and I don't muck around like I I'm really um, I'm you know I'm really joyous about the capability of of pursuing a scent or a trail and fulfilling that trail mm. it's really special
0: to me well that's interesting because yeah. another thing I heard you talk about is um, this idea of charm in nature. Yeah. And that, I find that really interesting and in that it's sort of like something is calling to you or that you're attracted to. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that, or the that idea?
1: Yeah. Charm, I mean, charm is, it starts with like, um, you know, sneaking down to the Christmas tree for me and, and seeing the presents from Santa, right? That's the beginnings of like something's come from some someone that you've never really met but... They love you, and they 've left something for you because you 've you 've been okay you've you 've been a good person right this concept that every year is probably one of the biggest moments in a young person 's life in our culture in my culture is this Christmas concept where good boy Johnny um, Sanders left you a present and uh, and you open it up and 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 you marvel at it well that that 's the beginnings of it being programmed into you as this kind of kind of um special occasion of 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 giving and then later on it becomes something like um charm was like uh being up in in this valley in the andes and on my own on another time in a tent for about two weeks on my own up there and in the fog again uh this is after the time i got lost i went back in the fog i ran into the white horse um And it was the two of us in the fog being together. And for me, because of the charm of that horse, I stayed up there longer and learnt more. Otherwise, I would have left. Mm -hmm. So that horse had references of survival because it had a broken ankle. It had learnt to survive and its mane was all the way down to the fralihon, the, the wild plants that have adapted there by growing wool to stay warm. And that horse was a gate. Was like a gate in a garden for me that opened and allowed me into this garden. So the charm for me is we could call it a gate that normally we don't go inside that space, but because it's there, this charming element, it allows us to pry the gate open and have a peek and see if we want to go further. So I I would say that, for example, when I take the tinny Up River and I'm going into the mangroves, I have so many... Uh, built-in fears as to why am I doing this don't do this it's just unknown like you're going right into the bush you're going to get off the tinny you've got to climb up oysters you've got to then move through the mud country snakes you, you, you know you're alone and there could be a weirdo and all those things that are programmed in from childhood and so I search the area for something charming to be a symbol that it's okay to be here And I'm asking for some kind of permission or I'm asking for something to be a sign. And sometimes it's a sign to leave. Don't, you are not allowed here. And I listen to that as well. So it's just a private kind of language system of of kind of gates opening and shutting that give me access to um, worlds that I may not or experiences I may not want to access. And part of being the age that I'm at was, you know, I'm more comfortable in being in places uh, that were that are uncomfortable. And that took a long time in my, my adult life to get to a point where I could go into a room and just be me versus kind of all that effort to try and, um, you know, work out who you're supposed to be in a space with people around you and all that, you know.
0: Yeah, I think it comes yeah. with age a bit more mm. as well, definitely. Um, well, and also the other thing that um, is a very strong subject matter in your work is the tree. Mm. And um, you paint a, a absolutely beautiful trees. I saw one yesterday, a couple of days ago actually at Art House Gallery, which was Angofra Yeoman's Bay. And this leads me to talk a bit about uh your technique, because we did talk about it just earlier today when I was taking some, we were taking some video, yes. and we were talking about this um, uh, use of tools like uh, belt sander and Dremel. rotary tools. Yeah, yeah Dremel, yeah. a Dremel tool. And you were talking about this amazing thing about you know lines and vibrations. I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that yeah. on the podcast.
1: You know when I when I when I owned. When I bought my boat, it has a beautiful old engine in it. And uh, at first, uh, I knew nothing of its sounds. And I had a teacher, Andre, the ferry driver, come and teach me how to drive my boat because I didn't even know how to steer it. <laughs> and he was really tough with me with the training and made me go in big winds. And it's a 40-ton boat. You know, it's a it's a little kind of a... It's a single screw, single engine, really difficult to drive. Anyway, he said, listen to the engine, listen, listen. And then he would say she's stressed, she's stressed, listen to her, oh, now she's calm, oh, she loves you now, listen to her now, she loves you. And he opened me up to the sonic space of... um understanding the sound and the vibration of the timber around the frame of the engine because it's the timber that is the amplifier of what really is the sound of the engine it's acting like a speaker so hear the timber vibrate and when she's really vibrating learn that she's being stressed and so carving is very similar you know you can you can turn the little battery on and hear a 12 volt battery But over many hours, that little battery spinning becomes a song. And in the spinning sound of grinding, my brain is converting what the the first sounds I used to hear in the beginning many years ago, it's now converting it into conversation. right? So the engine is no longer engine to me. It's an infinite playground of hearing voices.
0: And is this after a period of time? Yeah, it's taken like
1: five years. And so I no longer, like a pilot with his plane, has to stay up in the sky and trust that one engine to keep him up there. The relationship with the engine isn't just standard sonic that we would hear, it's got many, many tonal. Elements to, to the whole language or the vibrational space. So, for example, if you live near a tree that's very close to your bedroom window, you will over time learn the speed of the wind based on the creak of the tree that it, one branch rubs the Calabon gutter roofing. Mm. You will learn what the wind is doing and you will use the tree as a reference that, wow, that's a strong wind because you'll hear the you'll hear it, right? Or the sound of bamboo or even, uh, you know, our casuarinas are the singing trees for our First Nations people with the song where the wind coming through casuarina is a singing song that can then allow you to experience something other than just wind through leaves. So these are kind of – so carving for me over a long period of time, say I start carving for 40 minutes – I'm hearing rhythm, tapping. I can either hear it as uh, a really awful mechanical sound or I can convert the frequency and the experience into something quite amazing. And that interests me about life because there's a lot we hear that isn't great, even from leaders, politics. Mm -hmm. So how do we take it realistically for what it is, but how do we also add a element of of um love to it or an element of of uh i use that word again sensuality or succulent how can we make it moist so something can grow out of that barrage so if i live near a road that has buses how can i convert that if i can't leave the apartment how can i convert the bus into something else instead of like it's eating me and so if I let the labor eat me on these works that are so carved and so courageously kind of beyond my normal efforts, like, like I told you about hiking, I would give up. I so want to give up in these, but I push through because I don't remember. So I don't remember it because the singing was so beautiful. I don't recall really what happened. I'm a bit dazed. And it's in that dazed space that I I I really love in the art practice that I have is it's it's you know it's it's loose, loosey goose, you know? And so does
0: that mean the marks that you make are created during that sort of state that you're in, which is caused by that
1: They they range from being academic marks where I'm understanding concepts of um, design, like just pure graphic design, but only That only stays so long, like in the cycle I told you about creation. Well, the same, my brain's controlling all the mark-making. I'm doing a really good job. Every line is roughly the same, two meals apart. Good on you, Josh. And then, ooh, you're gone. And yeah. then it comes back again. Oh, wow, you're back again. So, wow, look at those lines. They're a bit funky. Okay, now you're working with a new, there's a kink in the line. I'll do the next one with a kink and then the next one with a bigger kink, and suddenly all your perfect geometry now has a kink in it and you're now following the kink. So yeah. it's, it's fun.
0: Yeah, and it's also risky. I mean, there's a lot
1: of risk involved. There's no risk if, if, uh, if uh, I'm making it for myself, firstly. The risk might be, okay, you, you cross the threshold and you show it to people. But firstly, you know, whether I'm showing or not, these are for me. So there's no risk except I'm alone making my marks, you know. I can do anything in here.
0: So do you have to get out of your head that this is for a show? Uh, I,
1: I don't know how to answer that because I'm, I'm I, you know, I don't know how to answer that. I, I, feel, I feel like I've got to build bridges I want to build bridges so that people can hop into the world I build and not be pushed away. And that's okay. You can make art where it's telling everyone to to fuck off. This is my place. Go away. But I'm asking people to hold my hand and come in. And then when they come in, I'm saying, can I hold your hand as you show me what you see in my work? Because sometimes I think there's things in them that are in the other space that they're pulling out And teaching me you know it's kind of and so like the little boy yesterday was showing me stuff in my work that was in his imaginings and i i like art like that i like art that you live with that mom and dad come home with a painting and you grow up with that painting and you form your whole story around the painting that may not be the point of view of mom and dad they see the picture or what happened in a whole different light but your imaginings is you always thought the character in the left had just robbed a bank and, you know, you create <laughs> yeah. dreaming, right? Yeah, of course you and do, And you yeah. grow with it. And to me, pictures have that, uh, you know, good pictures in my interest level have the ability to transform into someone else's dreaming. They're not rigid.
0: Yeah. Well, another thing that I ask a lot of my guests is how, you know, how they get into that state of flow with mm. their creativity, um, do you find that a difficult thing to do or do you have certain conditions you need for that yeah. to happen?
1: Um, so I, I spent – one of the special times I had in Venezuela was the house I would sleep in sometimes was owned by a garlic farmer. He was in his, like, 60s, and he he would – occasionally take me down to the field and we just kind of work on one of the, the rows of garlic and his day was kind of going up and down, just looking for weeds and just checking on them. And then he'd sit under the tree and then he'd go back and check on them again. And I kind of thought that seems really kind of cool, you know, and, and I felt that like when I paint, I'm checking on them um, I'm looking after them as they grow. I'm watching them grow. But I'm patient enough to have them as saplings and take a while, or even seeds. So I believe in fallow time. I believe in these times where you're getting hinted at, like I talked about the creative destruction cycle. You get these hints that anything you make in this moment will kill itself, that you actually won't produce anything. It's a time for actually non hidden creativity. It's a time to actually tend to the family to tend to the car, have it serviced. There's this kind of fallow preparation. And I wrote in Surrender, it's a bit like having a bucket ready for when it does rain, like having every, ha- organizing your life in a way that when the creative moment comes that your little seed that has been stuck in the packed clay earth has been waiting a long time to give a push because it hears a little vibration of a water drop hitting say a foot above and it can feel that vibration and the seed knows moisture is coming and seeping down and will open and unfurl its tightness like its strong tightness and it will unfurl to then take a chance and push its little green stalk out right that's like being an artist to me it's like I can't make anything now there's too many obligations I'm too required to turn up to this family thing and I'm required to do this so it's about holding the belief that the rain's coming but also being aware that you're ready to catch it and not miss it and that's the big one is you you before people or and sometimes myself you you created another drama they didn't allow you to have your vessel ready to catch the creative rain that can come and bang, you start making things. Yeah. You know, it's it, it comes and goes, it's like not consistent. And so, so um, I
0: mean, to be pre- so, I suppose, in practical terms, to be prepared for that to happen, you have to be ready to go at any moment, sort of a thing. Yes, do you think that's the practice?
1: Yeah. Well, the practice is practice in the from my love of Eastern. Studies is the practice is daily but the practice is not i paint daily the practice is that i i learn to complete sequences so whether i'm washing up i learn to do the washing up but do it as a sequence that is no different to painting So the sequences fulfill the suds, make the little bowl. I make a little bowl with suds. I start cleaning the plates. You create your rhythm. And as I do that, my goal in life is to get to a point where that should be no different in joy to the joy of painting. Because if my brain plays the other game, oh, fuck this cleaning up, I just want to paint, I'm setting myself up. For this roller coaster of I can paint, I can't paint, I can paint, right? Yeah. So if I can change it to rhythm and movement of my fingers with soap suds and how I hold a plate and how I, I rub it and put it, however my, my wife would laugh at me and say I, I'm such a poor cleaner, but you know, in 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 that realm of of things like the way I grow plants on bamboo, everything is the practice, and I think that's what we've adopted from the east is that everything leads to the painting. Everything leads to the way I hold my children's hand down to the bus stop. Everything is everything. It's all unified. And the, the, it's a, my, one of my great mentors, who was a painter, struggled so much because... Um, uh, he craved painting so much that everything else was a hindrance. You know, everything was a hint, And I just saw that as, okay, i got to change my software and download a different module because otherwise I'll be eaten up because I, I want to create so much. Yeah. And if I see things as stopping me, mm. uh, I'll go nuts.
0: In about three weeks or so, your show opens at uh, Art House Gallery, Providence, and... Um, has that come out of, I think I read somewhere that came out of a trip to Lord Howe Island and the Rocky Mountains, is yeah, that Yeah, the, right? sh-
1: the show um, is based on pre-COVID, I had this amazing sequence of um, being upriver on the boat painting uh, in Yeoman's Bay and making uh, some work um, about some rocks that I've I've always wanted to paint uh, uh And then there's an organisation in Melbourne that I really respect called Cool Australia that make modules for schools, school kids. They make curriculums for teachers to download and they're environmentally based and they've made some great ones about Indigenous fire and Jane Goodall. And I thought... Um, I could team up with Capella Lodge in Lord Howe and make one about Lord Howe Island, which I consider one of the most remarkable places here in Australia, and how they have worked also hard to keep the island in its in its uh Vibrancy of life, natural life. And so they've worked towards eradicating the rat, and they've all worked so hard to do that, which is really paying off now. Um, they're going solar. Um, they are careful about their marine biodiversity. Um, it's quite an extraordinary place just two hours off our coast. So I'm raising, I made a big picture that's going to raise money to build this module just to show. Students, just how awesome this place is and the people on it that are caring for it. Wow. Um, so, there's other works I made while I was in retreat there um, with Joey. We were both there, which was so special. Um, and then the work is partly at Mount Cook on, in New Zealand. Um, and the other work is in Snow Country in Colorado. I've painted these um, aspen trees, or not painted, but I've carved aspen trees because. You know, Something amazing happens uh, when you hike through that country is that you see all these trees that have lost limbs, but when they lose a limb, an eye is formed in the bark. And so after hiking for 10 days through snow, all these eyes started to watch me versus me watching them. And I've made this series kind of showing that experience of all these kind of you know, the human being watched by nature's intelligence. Oh, that sounds amazing.
0: Oh, I can't wait to see the show. (laughs) Well, Josh, we've run out of time. I was going to ask you a whole lot of things (laughs) about about the Archibald, the Win, the Solman, anyway, because you've been finalist in all of those prizes, but prizes aren't everything. Um, So good luck with the show coming up and thank you so much for your time today.
1: Well, I want to thank you for um, I would have killed as a younger artist to listen to artists, Explain their practice and so thank you for creating this opportunity in Australia. I really appreciate it.
0: What a wonderful artist! It's such a pleasure having Joshua on the podcast. See the website talkingwithpainters.com for details of Joshua's current show, or else just go to Art House Gallery's website and watch out for the video of Joshua in his studio, which will be online the next couple of weeks. If you're new to the podcast, you can subscribe to this and my YouTube channel where you can currently see over 130 videos of podcast guests I've filmed, mostly in their studios, but also some at their exhibitions. And you can also follow the show on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Before I sign off today, I just wanted to mark today's historical event. Back in the early days of the podcast in 2016, Susan O'Doherty and I were expressing outrage at a piece of audio which had just come to light, where women were the subjects of debasing and disgusting comments. That audio would become known as the Access Hollywood Tape. And little did we know then, but a lot more disturbing comments as well as disruption and division would follow, which would shock the world. But as I record this on 8 November 2020, the future for many looks a little brighter than it did yesterday, and I hope the optimism continues into the months and years ahead. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters.
1: And so for me, art is partly being trickster because what you're doing is you're tricking yourself and your mind that is quite rigid in some ways. You're tricking it to take you into new areas of discovery. And I think that, for example, a brush, if you pick a brush um, that is on the boundary of change, like the brush is a long head, kind of crazy mangled thing, it's going to force you to adapt in the work versus the standard brush that you use every day. You know it really well. So I'm a great believer in materials should be materials that force you out onto the boundary where change is. So I use tools that are aggressive, that sand back. Like I use belt sanders that can literally sand the eye off a picture and I've lost the eye. So it's an hour without an eye.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Even though you didn't intend that to happen. yeah.